Hello there and welcome to another episode of the Extraordinary Podcast. My name is Tobias Dahlberg. I am the founder and head strategist here at Wondering. The theme of the podcast, as some of you might know, is about how to become extraordinary, how to stand out and stand for something, and how to get the fuel for becoming extraordinary in a world where average, where ordinary is a recipe for disaster. So in this episode, I'm talking to one of the most respected persons in the branding industry in the world. His name is Alan Adamson. He used to be the chairman of Lander Associates, which is one of the biggest, if not the biggest branding agency in the world. I think you're going to like this episode a lot. I really enjoyed it myself. Alan will be talking about his new book, which is called Shift Ahead. Uh, he's also written three other great books, which I can highly recommend. Uh, you'll hear the names in the intro of the podcast. We're going to be talking about his new company. He just founded a new company. And so hope you're going to like it. So today I'm joined by indisputably one of the most experienced and respected persons in the branded industry. He has not only chaired and led one of the biggest branding agencies in the world, Landor Associates, he's been working hands-on as an expert in all disciplines of branding, from consumer and corporate businesses ranging from packaged goods, technology, healthcare, finance, hospitality, and entertainment. He's also the author of four highly respected books, some of which are widely used in the universities. They are called Brand Simple, Brand Digital, The Edge, 50 Tips from Brands That Lead, and most recently, Shift Ahead. He is a sought-after industry commentator. He's appeared on ABC News Nightline, on Today Show, CNBC, Squawk Box, Closing Bell, and many more. He's often quoted in publications such as the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Advertising Age, USA Today, Forbes, you name it. He is the co-founder and managing director of Metaphors. Welcome to the podcast, Alan Adamson. Great to have you. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to have you. And uh, that was quite an impressive resume. I have to start by asking you before we get into to your latest book and into branding. How did you get your job? How did you, how did you become what you became uh, so far in your career? It, it, of course, it's it, no one. No one grows. No one starts off to say, "I want to go into the branding business." Uh, so, <laughs> uh, I uh, I was going to be a filmmaker, and I went to school and made a couple um, mediocre films, uh, <laughs> and uh, quickly realized that Hollywood wasn't waiting for me. I uh, after film school, I went to business school, and after business school, I was lucky enough to join Ogilvy & Mather, a large uh, global ad agency, and. It allowed me to uh, stay pretty close to film because we, back in those days, the commercials were film. Uh, we made 30-second films. Uh, but it most importantly allowed me to work with creative people who looked at problems in the world a little differently and how important creativity was in connecting uh, with consumers and, and getting them to uh, understand who you are and why you're different. So uh, starting at Ogilvy was a uh, a really good foundational bridge between my original desire to be uh, Steven Spielberg, uh, and uh, where I ended up. What was it really that you fell for? What what was so attracting about branding to you? Um, like it is today, back then, um, creativity was important. Lots of marketing and business 
challenges are not linear problem solving. They're conceptual. They require creativity. They require looking at what is and saying, hmm, I wonder how we can get people intrigued, how we can stand out. So uh, working with creative people uh, who look at the world a little differently hmm. and are able to see how you connect to people, how you use emotion to to get people to behave differently, uh, it, was a, it was a great training ground, uh, yeah. particularly back not quite in the Mad Men days, but uh, when I when I joined, yeah. And how? What was your career path? How did that? Can you walk us through the the path that you took? Yeah, I, I spent a, a few years uh, enjoying advertising and uh, learning lots from uh, terrific leaders. I was at Ogilvy and Mather, hmm. and um, and then I had the opportunity to go to the client side. Uh, I joined Unilever uh, and uh, spent many many years there, <laughs> six seven years. Uh, uh, working on global brands uh, from Snuggle to Dove and to Caress. And it was also a great training ground because uh, the difference, as much as we tried to persuade you otherwise, between one soap and another soap was not that significant. Mm-hmm. And success was um, making your brand more relevant, helping getting your brand to stand out more. So it was a really great uh, place to learn all aspects of marketing and branding from advertising to packaging to promotion to PR. And it really, um, it was foundational in helping me understand how to, uh, how to help a company build a brand and, 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 uh, and leverage it. Mm. Mm. So, so can I ask you at this point already, what, what do you think is the difference between advertising agencies and sort of brand or brand consultancies and what made you progress to the latter? Well, back in in those days, ad agencies did lots of things. They didn't just make ads. When clients came to an ad agency, almost in the Mad Men days, as I said, uh, they they had business problems. They had marketing problems. They they wanted you to sell the coffee or mm. get people to fly the airline. And and yes, you often told a story and made a commercial, but you also did the media and you also got involved in many many aspects. And then the world got very very fragmented. Uh, and one of the fragments that grew out of that fragmentation of uh, marketing was the specialty of trying to get the brand. Mm. Right. And then part of it is the branding. How do you get that story in the marketplace, of which advertising is is uh, still an important lever you can push to get your brand story into people's heads. Mm. Exactly. So branding is more holistic then. Is that... Yeah. 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 And so... Speaking of brands and branding, what is sort of your definition? I mean, there's so many different definitions of brand and branding. Like, how? What's your worldview, and what sort of principles do you operate by? Yeah, I, I tend to to try to de-jargon the world, and and, and uh, you know, a brand is your story. What you want someone to think about first hmm. uh, when they hear your name, of your product, your service, even who you are. And as as I said a minute ago, you know, branding is how you get that in their head. It could be your packaging, it could be your advertising, it could be your product design, it could be what your product does, it could be your name, it mm. could be your social media. There are a hundred ways to get into the people's heads today. Uh, hard to stay there. Um, mm. But those things, of course, uh, need to work symbiotically and work together. Uh, and the best brand strategy is a simple strategy. You know, If you mm. try to tell somebody a hundred things about yourself, uh, you're lucky if they're a member one. And the best brands really figure out how to sharpen their story and get it simple and sticky 
So branding comes before brand, I guess you could say then. The brand is the effect of branding, right? Yeah, you, yeah. but you need to know the destination. You, you know, lots of people say, oh, my, I need some branding. I need a new logo, a new ad. And they haven't thought through hmm. what their story is. They haven't gotten that story different and relevant and sharp. Hmm. Uh, and they think just by doing a funny ad or you know, a new identity or you know, a fun promotion – that's going to build their business. And that could get awareness. I've, I've heard of you and mm. maybe I remember you, but it's not going to get me to say, well, I've heard of you. I remember you. I think you're different. You're relevant to me without thinking through what the brand is, what the story is, because you need to get that story really precise. And the more precise and sharp and simple and sticky you can get that brand story, uh, the more effective, of course, uh, your branding will be. Mm. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I I really love, and it's funny because I I was really affected uh, by your book Brand Simple myself a few years back, and I really love the way that you simplified things. It really helped me understand branding much better. I was just uh, starting my company ten years ago, um, but I think one of the terms that I especially like was this idea about brand signals. I think that broad because I've heard a lot of people say everything communicates and everything is communication and all these different things. But brand signals for me was a, a very good way to to really uh, get this idea across that uh, that everything is a brand signal. Everything is part of telling that story. Could you maybe open up a little bit what you thought when you yeah when you I, the term? yeah people always go to the most obvious signals. Oh, we need an ad. We need a new uh, promotion and. Um, but there's so many signals today, which makes it a very big challenge. Mm. And figuring out which signal is going to connect and how do you tell your story really powerfully through a signal. I mean, I would argue that the most powerful branding signal today for Apple are their blue shirts in the Apple stores. And yes, their packaging is terrific and is good, good and good and trans and their ads are good. But ultimately, uh, their blue shirts and when you have a problem and how they treat you and how they interact are a phenomenally powerful branding signal that is going to be hard for someone to just say forget about those blue shirts uh, or those people at the genius bar um, you know here's a, a buy one get one free promotion that's going to get you to switch phones mm -hmm. yeah great love that and so Alan tell what got you to write a fourth book I mean I I, I can just imagine how much time and effort it takes to write a book. And have you already written three? Why the fourth book? Interesting. Uh, one, one reason is, you know, you always learn far more. If I called you up and said, I want to ask you about your business and what's working and what's not, uh, people are incredibly generous with their time. And so hmm. on some dimension, it's a recharging of the batteries. You get to go back to school for a year and a half hmm. and do research yeah. And just spend far more time listening than talking. But the other is a big change in the business. As more and more clients were coming to Landor, um, where I was uh, uh, working for many years, uh, with problems that were not easily fixed through marketing, they they'd become irrelevant. They, their 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 business was was failing, uh, and a little bit of marketing, a little bit of signaling was not going to fix it. And I said, "Gee, is it just me?" Or are more and more organizations, big ones, small ones, having troubles keeping their company in business, keeping relevant? Mm -hmm. And as we dug into it, yeah, um, the pace of change uh, was not only leveling the uh, technology business and 
maybe now the transportation business and soon to be the car business. But um, it was happening across all businesses. And mm-hmm. and if you don't stay relevant and make sure what you offer is different in a way people care about, it doesn't matter how well you do branding. Mm-hmm. So um, more and more companies were becoming uh, – were falling by the wayside, becoming irrelevant. So I said, let me do some research. Let me find out, is it just me or are more and more organizations having trouble – keeping up and shifting their business to stay mm. relevant. And what did you find out? Yeah, uh, surprisingly, yes. Lots of companies are struggling with this issue. Uh, I was hoping to find the you know four things everyone can do to prevent yourself from becoming um, uh, uh, irrelevant, and mm. uh, whether it's Sears or Toys R Us or Radio Shack or the dozens and dozens of other uh, companies that have become uh, – afterthoughts and uh unfortunately there were far more ways you could fail at doing this than there were ways that you could succeed and there were lots of ways that companies were mistakes they were making to uh prevent them from becoming from shifting ahead Mm -hmm. Uh, but sometimes it's just important just to pay attention everyone knows that to live a healthy life you got to eat less and exercise more so the theory is not hard (laughs) Yeah. It's the ex. It's the uh, activation and execution that matters. And so, uh, lots of what we found out, people will read as they flip through, shift ahead. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That that that's clear. That and uh, part of success is trying not to do all those things. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So you mentioned shift ahead, and that is, of course, the name of your new book. So can you just uh, give us the premise for the book and why did you call it shift ahead? Um, the, the premise came because more and more companies today are very focused on marketing and selling their product and doing better branding, and but their core business is becoming irrelevant. And if they don't shift their business ahead, no amount of marketing or branding is going to help them. And, and um, trying to zoom out and say, what's going on in the marketplace that makes keeping a business relevant today much more difficult than it was yesterday. Wow, love that. That was actually almost the same premise that I founded my company on, actually. <laughs> was this, I, th- I think something similar. I think you've just cultivated and explained it much better. But, but there was this idea that, that marketing, all the marketing in the world, or let's say maybe the more shallow definition of marketing, will not save your business unless, unless you actually can become different, if you can really like leverage your whole business around it. So really yeah, trying to yeah, marry it's, business it's and your brand. S- Exactly. Is your story still something, your brand strategy, your story, your offer, all the buzzwords, your value proposition? Is that still something people find relevant and care about? Mm. And if they care about it, are you different? And the pace of change is flattening so many organizations. You don't have to uh, try to hail a New York City taxi to realize that it's just a matter of time until you know everyone is just pushing an app. To get from here to there, you don't have to uh, extrapolate to self-driving cars to know that people aren't going to be buying as many cars five years from now. They are. Mm. So, those um, and or be propelled on something other than uh, carbon-based fuels. So, um, yeah, it's obvious when you're outside of the bubble, but most organizations operate really in a bubble. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. What did you, by the way, find during your career that was the perhaps the number one challenge 
working with companies, which part of the branding process or which part of it is the most difficult to get right? Trying something different and new. You know, <laughs> lots of companies are steeped in risk aversion. This yeah. is what we did last year. It worked. So we're just going to do the same thing next year and we'll just tweak it. You know, one of the interesting things I see going on is when people try to turn around failing companies, they continue to just play the same game that led to that success, and it's unlikely to turn around. So when um, when I face companies that are scared to try new things, it's usually a signal that sooner or later they're going to uh, run into strong headwinds. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly my my experience as well. Just getting getting people to execute on a bold idea. I mean, with everything that encompasses. Uh, yeah, it's typically something that's not been done before, so there's no proven case history. They can't go into their boss and say, "We're going to do this," and it worked for P and G, and it worked for Coca Cola, yeah. and it, they have to go in and say, "We're going to do this." It's never been done before. Yeah, uh, and it, and it might know, not work. Uh, yeah, it's a fifty fifty chance. If it works, it's going to be big, but it could also flame out, <laughs> and it's going to cost more than a dollar. And you know, and please don't fire me if it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that's the new world that everyone is to wrap their head around because that's not unfortunately the case, which is understandable. Of course, people have jobs, and you want to sort of uh, do something predictable, but it's very difficult in this world, right? Um, the bigger the company, the harder it is to manage risk. Absolutely. Yeah. So the bigger the company, the more risk averse they get, and the more, you know, the, the more they go back to this is what worked in the past, and we're going to keep on doing it. And of course, until it doesn't work, and then it's usually too late to change. Yeah, exactly. And I guess that's when when companies fall into mediocrity, which I call the worst place in business. I don't know if you agree with that, but I think yeah. it's just that's that's what opens the doors to all the small companies and startups with uh, much less resource and knowledge and all that stuff and they're still able to take on these giants right and you know there are two things that came up on that topic and we had a great interview uh, with the columnist from the New York Times Thomas Friedman and one of his phrases uh, he shared uh, in the talk was average is over and mm. um, too many marketers as you just mentioned just do a good job you know okay website okay um uh, advertising the product is good but uh, in a world where there's a lot of good and a ton of similarity and a ton of competition mm -hmm. just being okay and it, just being average is not going to help you stand out mm -hmm. and so getting marketers to focus on two or three things and try to be extraordinary in a few ways is the recipe for success but it's really hard to do mm. Love that. You just touched upon the whole topic of this podcast, and I love that. Thanks for that. <laughs> uh, what were some of the other findings? I, what I really love about your book is that it's very practical, and it's filled with like real-world examples. Maybe is there something that comes to mind that you could mention some of the cases, that some of the studies, some of the interviews, some of the brands that you mentioned in the book? So when I was at Unilever, uh, we were, you know, while there were many dimensions of marketing that we were terrific at, one of the things that began to happen that I noticed was that more and more of the conversation at Unilever was, did you see what P&G was doing? Look at what Colgate is doing. We became very fixated on what our direct competitors were doing uh, and often trying to copy what P&G was doing, either do it 
the same or better. Um, and, you know, that's important. You're in a competitive marketplace. You're trying to take share from P&G. I mean, from P&G or trying to take share from Colgate. Mm. But uh, it became more like playing tennis. You're very focused on what your opponent is doing. I'm bad at tennis, but when I'm playing tennis, I try to hit the ball where my opponent is not. Mm. But success and the lots of disruption didn't happen from Colgate or P&G. It came from somewhere else. And so by focusing intensely on the competition, many companies don't see the train coming down the track from a totally different direction. They're not playing enough golf. They're not zooming out enough and looking around and seeing which way the wind is going and looking at the terrain, focusing on the ball, the consumer. Um, and so if you look at big companies today, uh, even back to Procter & Gamble, uh, I worked um, – uh, in many categories, but Gillette was very focused on Schick, and if if Schick came out with five blades, Gillette came out with five blades, and you know, very much mm. a symbiotic, and life was good until somebody came from outside of the category, <laughs> yeah, and reinvented it. Uh, a couple now they're both in trouble. Yeah. So, you know, one of the key lessons from Shift Ahead is yes, pay attention to your outfit, but playing well, you know, look around. Look what's happening in the environment. Um, see which way. Be a better observer of what's the macro picture. Zoom out and mm. don't become totally fixated on the person right in front of you. Mm. Is, do you have any good advice for how to do that? Like let's say people buy into that idea. How should they do that? It, it's really hard um, because uh, uh, one of the things many of the interview subjects and the research we did, people get so busy day to day that all they can do is double click and stand in front of their screen and mm. and answer questions uh, emails and they tend to lose touch it was a quote from one of the research people we spoke to uh, Paco Underhill who does a lot of uh, customer research and he's a mm. cultural anthropologist so he doesn't just ask people what they want when they're buying cereal in the morning he just observes them in the store at breakfast and and by being a really good observer of behavior really gets to understand them. But one of his quotes to me was, look at, look at companies, look at the many, many companies in the office furthest away from the customer is often the office of the leader of that company. Um, <laughs> and, and so, um, um, so I think, you know, part of success is to, to get out of your office to, mm. you know, if you talk to founders of companies, another great book called The Founder's Mentality. Mm. Founders are always, when they're shopping, they ask people, did you like the applesauce? Did you not like the applesauce? Um, they are, they're, they're just totally in the marketplace, constantly asking everybody at every mm. dinner party, what do you think of this? They're, they're, they're just, they're a bit, as Andy Grove, the famous uh, leader of Intel said, a bit paranoid. Yeah. Is, is this gonna and when you get successful, you become complacent. Well, it worked last year let's do you, you lose touch with that founder there's mm. passion to read just walking the mall walking the aisles talking to people about what do they find interesting in uh in uh, coffee that's changing you know you, you're, you're passionate about it and don't mm. lose that passion don't yes. lose that curiosity exactly and uh now, since we're, we're on the topic of sort of internal, or let's call it internal branding or culture, brand culture, any other findings that relate to, to how you can, you can really amplify that, 
those behaviors or, or just behaviors in general that support um, the, 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 you know, shifting ahead? Well, uh, you know, uh, uh, there's, of course, not one right solution, but another um, another successful recipe, if you would, was to make sure your team is not totally homogenous. Um, because mm. companies that tend to embrace a little diversity in thinking, if everyone looks and has a, what we call the, a fixed worldview, everyone looks out mm. and says the world is flat, <laughs> and that's reality, <laughs> um, and everyone believes it, and everyone's drinking the Kool-Aid, as they say, yeah. then you believe the world is flat, and you don't worry about it, you just move on. Mm. But if perhaps you know, you're wrong and the world is not flat, you're in really big trouble. And so by making sure you don't hire people who have the exact same background, the exact same education, exact same fixed worldview, mm. if you have a little diversity, if you have a, a bit of a team that just looks at the world through slightly different lenses, you're going to be more capable from a cultural point of view of perhaps seeing the world becoming round before other people see it becoming round. Mm. You In the book, you mentioned these red flags. You cover red flags, uh, the things that uh, I suppose you're not supposed to do. Or how would you explain that and, and why are they important? You know, red flags are things that... Um, um, are happening that you um, y you see, but you know uh, that are early warning signs, if you would, advanced uh, long-term radar to say what's coming. And you know, one of them is um, is is something that many people don't have a lot of change uh, control over. Is that, um, and there's been much written about this. Is lots of big companies run into trouble when they. Get what which, which we call we call in the book you know golden handcuffs. They are mm. so successful at what they're doing that anything new they try is going to be less profitable. We had some uh, you know great conversations with executives who were at Kodak when it was you know, Kodak, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then when it became less so. And one of the challenges that Kodak had to there, of course, it's never just one thing that yeah. brings a big company down. Uh, usually, lots of things. But one of the biggest challenges they had was. The film business was so profitable that almost anything else they did was less profitable. Mm. And Wall Street was holding them to generate quarter-on-quarter -quarter profit growth. And you know the only way to do that was to sell more and more film. Because if they mm. took money out of the film business and put it into something called digital, which no one really understood back then, yeah. the only thing for sure is they would make less money that quarter. Yeah. Uh, and so you know, if you're stuck with golden handcuffs – you really have to work hard. It's a potential red flag. Yeah. Same in the, if you look at the cable television business in the U.S. Yeah. A lot of the cable companies are making oodles of money, you know, just putting a, a cable to your house mm. and keep that cable so you, you can get media. And, and, of course, what's happening is as people go over the top and the internet changes things and people viewing habits change. You know, it's pretty close to the tipping point that when, you know, the number of consumers that are going to give cable companies big checks just to run a cable so they can get television in their house. Um, it, you don't have to be in the future predicting business to know that's going to be difficult. Now, what makes it hard for the cable companies is it's so profitable yeah. that if they get into other over-the-top technologies – the only thing for sure is they're going to probably kill their core business faster and it's going to be less profitable. Mm, absolutely, yeah. Also, w one thing you mentioned in the beginning of the book is this um, 
idea that shifting ahead, if I understand it correctly, is is not just sort of jumping into something new, but it's really about understanding your past and sort of balancing it. Can you talk talk about that? Yeah, yeah. Part of, part of the other thing that um, we learned in the research is that um, yeah, the theory of how to shift ahead. Uh, like many things, like the theory of how to do great brand and branding is pretty easy. It's the execution mm. that separates winners from losers. Uh, you know, Apple was not the first company to make a tablet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> call it an iPad. You know, they were the ones who figured out how to get everything right from the design to the user interface, et cetera, et cetera, mm. uh, in the marketing. Um, and so lots of companies, you know, see change coming and then say, well, let's go do that. But they don't have the... We, we call the DNA, the skill set, mm. um, to succeed or to execute really well. Sort of like if people ask me to play uh, basketball, you know, I could practice lots, but given I'm only five foot eight, um, mm. you know, I, I'm never going to help them win at basketball. So uh, <laughs> a lot of companies get into businesses. We had a great conversation with the uh, uh, CEO of Hasbro Toys. Mm. And he came from a small division of Hasbro in the film business in Hollywood, and he came to run the entire uh, enterprise. And the people, I'm sure, in the toy business looked at him and said, "You know, what do you, you don't know the difference between monopoly and risk? You know, what are you doing here?" And he came out of the entertainment business, and he was able to bring some entertainment DNA, if you would, or skill sets mm -hmm. into Hasbro, so that they, as a company, all of a sudden zoomed out and became more capable of creating experiences that were more engaging to kids versus the mm. pure play toy companies. Uh, Lego soon followed with the getting into the movie business. But that's mm. an example of, you know, if you're going to shift, you have to make sure you have the DNA, the skill set, the expertise to win in that new space. Mm. And one of the big inhibitors is you build a whole company to do one thing, and now you're going to do another. You just got to make sure you don't take those same people and say, you don't know anything about uh, entertainment, but you know, here's a book on entertainment. Good luck. <laughs> You've yeah, got to yeah. get the right skill set in the in the organization because lots of people are going to see the same thing, and the winner is going to be the one that executes it best. Yeah, and so on that topic, like one thing that I face quite a lot myself uh, is this question exactly. So, so let's say you you're in the food business and uh, you have some really profitable business, but maybe they're not so healthy, and you're concerned about how people are going to perceive you. And so uh, sh then you know that you probably should be betting on uh, a much cleaner, healthier, more transparent world, for example. But you're afraid that you're going to kill your existing business if you make that shift like from, with, from a brand perspective, like really trying to stand for something new. Like how would, you, how would you advise that kind of company to make the transition? In other words, not wanting to abandon what you built and it was profitable for a long time, but still you need to to project this image that you are healthy and transparent, but part of your portfolio is not. Exactly. And that's one of the big barriers that prevents big companies from shifting ahead is that their core business is so successful or profitable or uh, tied to uh, uh, something that uh, is losing relevance yeah. that they're nervous to jump out and compete against it. So they can't compete against themselves. And as such, somebody from the outside does it for them. So, you know, there's no easy answer. You know, lots of people in the innovation space create a separate company, create a separate team. That has pros and cons. But, um, 
Yeah, great quote from uh, the founder of um, uh, of Marriott, Bill Marriott, who often said, "Success is never final." And if you keep that in mind, saying, "Yes, we're doing great in the food business here, and people love our average tasting food," but you know, if we don't if we don't shift ahead and get into the healthy side of the business, um, uh, you know, one of the big challenges facing a lot of the big beverage companies, Coke and Pepsi, is that. You don't have to be uh, a market research expert to know that consumers are going to be drinking less sugary, carbonated beverages five years from now. But so much of their business is, and the profitability is still tied up in Coke and Pepsi. The only question is, can they develop newer business fast enough hmm. to – and can they be successful in the new world uh, it, at, a, at a level anything close to what the success level is in their ex- old world? Hmm. And that's really hard to do. Yeah, and I think also with the fact that brands just tend to lag. I mean, when you go out and study, you know, ask people what they think of certain brands, it will take a few years typically for them to, to, to really transition. I yeah. mean, even Another finding, might, yeah, yeah, it's sort of tied to that, is that many big companies have trouble thinking small. Big companies think big. And when I was doing new brand development at some of the bigger companies – you know, one of the hurdles you had, you know, if somebody brought in a brand idea or a product idea, is this a big enough idea? We're a billion-dollar company. Is this going to be a billion-dollar business? Yeah. yeah. And if the answer was no, it went to the cutting room floor. But that just, you know, it could be a billion-dollar business, but it may take 10 years. Mm. But if you're only searching for billion-dollar ideas, it makes shifting ahead even more difficult because there are very few ideas that are successful to begin with. Uh, and then if you add the hurdle and it has to be a billion dollars, otherwise Pepsi, Coke, Procter won't be interested in it, mm. then you get into more trouble. Yeah, I can I could really relate to that. And uh, I think that was also one of the downfalls perhaps of Nokia, which is a Finnish company, um, you know, which you might know it's Finnish, but I mean, it, we're in Finland, so I have to mention that. But I think that was, that's what I heard. Yeah, from people. It, it, yeah. again, it was never... Yeah, I, I'm not you know that familiar with the Nokia series, but it was pretty typical in that um, many people looked at the world and said, you know, who's going to pay that much money for a phone? Nokia makes a great phone for fifty nine dollars. Why would somebody pay one hundred and fifty dollars for a phone that plays music? Mm. Um, and you know, again, it was the fixed worldview, looking at it myopically, you know, all, you know, not seeing that people would be shifting from phones to walking around with uh, Star Trek-like uh, objects in their hand. Mm. So it seems to me, Alan, that you kind of shifted ahead yourself uh, lately. I mean, you've left one of the most successful, one of the biggest branding agencies and, and started your own company. Can you tell us about you know, your new company and, and what you do and what, what got you started? Yeah, Metaforce is a, uh, basically a very simple idea, which is a special forces to try to help uh, organizations figure out how do they grow, how do they shift ahead, and then pivot to not only say, well, here's how you should do it, to here's how you should do it, and here's how we are going to help you execute and activate it. Because the right strategy without brilliant execution is worthless. Uh, the brilliant execution without the right strategy is worthless. And so what I like doing, what Metaforce is about is, can we help clients make a few smart bets and then help mm-hmm. them execute them really well so the bets pay off. And, and I'm sure that the, the research you did for a book acts as very good fuel for that uh, it gives idea, us, right? It gives us plenty of things not to do. 
It reminds you know the research for the book reminds us that it, it's there are many things you can do to to, uh, to not succeed, but trying to figure out the few things that are going to do to grow your business. If you can figure that out, that's great. But then you got to pivot to getting them done great, and getting them done great is not easy. But if you can do those two things, do a few of the right things and do them really well, you can grow almost any business. Mm. Excellent. That's excellent advice. Hey, I have one final question, and that is something I've been asking many people. If there was one thing that you could change about the clients that you work with, if you had almost like a magic pill and they could change one thing in, about their perception or their thinking or whatever it is, what, what would that be? The, 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 the one thing I wish more clients would embrace would be get out of their office and start seeing life from a 360 point of view so that, that they can better sense change with enough time to be able to shift their business before they get run over. Mm. That, that is great advice. Uh, where can people find you, Alan? What's the best way to connect with you besides getting your book, which everyone should do, by the way? Thank you. Uh, Metaphors.co uh, or just uh, let the magic of uh, Google or whatever Google. search engine um, um, find my website and... Uh, I'll be happy to uh, uh, chat more. Great. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Alan. This was truly terrific and very insightful for me as well. And I, it was a, a little bit what you said about writing a book. I mean, for me, doing this podcast is the most fantastic way of learning. So thank you also for, from a selfish point of view. And I, I really believe the listeners will get a lot out of this. So thanks so much for taking the time. It was I really enjoyed talking great. with you. Thank you so much. My pleasure.